Hi everyone, my name is Anastasia Lapatina, and you're listening This Week in Ukraine, a new video podcast from the Kyiv Independent. Every week, I sit down with one of my newsroom colleagues to dive into Ukraine's most pressing issues. And today, we're talking about Ukrainian attacks deep behind enemy lines on Russian soil. I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent reporter Francis Farrell. Francis, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure. So, Francis, a few days ago, the Washington Post reported that, allegedly, Ukrainian military intelligence, known here as GUR, was planning to launch massive attacks on Moscow on February 24th, 2023, so a year since Russia's full-scale invasion. The Post cited multiple classified reports from the NSA and CIA saying that this was going to be largely a symbolic operation, but the U.S. was really worried about it, that it would lead to escalation and such. And they made sure that uh, Gur postponed the strikes. So strikes in Moscow sound a bit shocking, but it wouldn't be the first time Ukraine attacks Russian soil. So tell us about those attacks in the past. So Ukraine actually didn't hold back from attacking uh, Russian territory with long-range missiles from the very first days of the full-scale invasion. The first recorded attack, as reported by Ukrainian journalists and Russian sources, although Ukraine didn't take responsibility, was on the 25th of February, the second day of the full-scale invasion, uh, it was a Tochka U ballistic missile attack on a Russian airbase just just outside the border in Rostov Oblast, and a few Russian combat aircraft were damaged. So they they clearly knew, you know, it's it's full-scale war, it's it's total war in a sense, and and we have the right to to make these strikes. And then in the next few months, April. May, we saw more and more attacks against Russian oil depots also close to the border. So Rostov Oblast, Belgorod Oblast, Bryansk Oblast. And uh, some of these videos showed that they were drones. Um, so Ukrainian kamikaze drones going across the border and hitting these oil depots, which were obviously really important for damaging Russian logistics. And so the next few months, we had a few more of these. And then the, the next really big special one, which everyone paid attention to, was not until December, when Ukraine struck the Engels Air Base, which is really deep inside Russia. It's, about, it's, it's, clo- it's further away from the, the Ukrainian border than Moscow itself. Um, wow. And that's the air base where a lot of these strategic uh, Russian bombers kind of take off from to launch their cruise missiles against Ukraine. That was right in the middle of this time when Russia was attacking Ukrainian infrastructure with dozens of cruise missiles every month. And so that was really special because you could see that then, you know, these attacks could have an, a real effect. You know, they were damaging some of these strategic bombers. And then since then, in the recent months, there's been another uptick in kind of more drone attacks inside Russia less kind of effective but but more dramatic in terms of where they're where they're targeting so we hear about new regions of russia where ukrainian drones have been found including right up near moscow so that that's when i guess you really get the understanding that if they wanted to as the u.s leaked documents said you know they could potentially hit targets inside moscow Given the state of the war right now, I mean, the situation in Bakhmut, all of these reports of Ukraine running low on ammunition, air defense, an attack on Moscow, the capital of Russia, that's like 450 kilometers away from our border with Russia, it sounds a bit too bold. Does Ukraine actually have a capability to do that? What kind of weapons has Ukraine been using to strike into Russia? 
Well, in terms of Ukraine's capability to to conduct these really long range strikes, so there are five factors I think that you really need to take into account, like in terms of how much damage Ukraine can actually do. Um, there's the range, like how far they can send a missile or a drone. There's how much explosive that can carry, so how much damage that can actually do once it arrives at its target. There's the accuracy, so can it really be directed all the way to hit something quite small? Um, of course, there's the enemy's ability to shoot it down. So how good is the Russian air defense? I know people have made a lot of memes about mm -hmm. what is the air defense doing. Um, and, and of course, there's the cost and the ability, like what actually does Ukraine have? And, and is it easy for them to produce more? Can they get them from somewhere? Um, so with all these factors kind of limiting, I would say encompassing Ukraine's long range strike capability, there are a few different options they have. Um, as I said, they used these Toshka-U ballistic missiles at first, but we know that they probably have basically run out of all of them by now. Um, so they need to get more creative. Uh, with the Engels airbase strikes, um, Ukraine never confirmed it, but we have a lot of evidence. Russia said, it, said so themselves that they used these really crazy Soviet-era jet drones that, fire, that, that fly at basically around the speed of sound and they were used for reconnaissance. So they weren't made to be kamikaze drones, but Ukraine modified them, strapped a bunch of explosives onto them. And Fascinating. Yeah. And these have proved to be really effective, especially in the Engels base strike, because they can fly really fast. So you've got that. You can strap a lot of explosives to them and they can do a lot of damage. They're hard to shoot down. Of course, Ukraine only has a couple of dozen of those on their stockpile. So Again, those are more like shock and awe attacks because, because they can't do that forever. Uh, the, other, the other drones that we've seen in use since about a year ago, since those first strikes against the oil depots, and now we see them as well. We see photos of them being shot down all over Russia. Those are cheaper kind of propeller drones. So I guess the best comparison there is more like the Iranian drones that the Russians use as well. So they're, they're quite cheap. They're very simple to design and build, um, but they are limited in some of those other factors. They're limited in the amount of explosives they can carry. And because they're just running on a little propeller, they're actually quite easy to shoot down. So, so these are some of the things kind of limiting what they can do. There's one other kind of secret super weapon that Ukraine apparently has, which is uh, called the Hrim ballistic missile, which can be compared to the Russian Iskander, similar system, similar range potentially. And the Russians have reported, we have no idea if it's true. The Russians have reported to have shot some of those missiles down as well. Um, but we really, we really don't know when, if they ever, ever really used those. They just built a couple of them. And what's the objective of these attacks? Do they actually help Ukraine militarily? So again, here it's worth distinguishing between the attacks where they succeed some you know real damage has been done that really affects russia's war effort to to others which are potentially more symbolic uh, you mentioned the washington post article right. said this attack against moscow was going to be was going to be symbolic so when we talk about the ones where they've used these um soviet old soviet repurposed drones the engels airbase i mean there you have a tangible impact you can say you know some of these important Russian strategic bombers were damaged, potentially brought out of service completely. And 
Um, same thing with the oil depot strikes. There you have a, a tangible result. But just like with lots of Russian missiles, uh, Ukrainian missiles also get shot down. Uh, Ukrainian drones also get shot down. And that's the weakness, I guess, of, of these smaller, cheaper drones that they can get shot down a lot more easily. So in that case, the, I guess the effect is more psychological. It's, it's more about, you know, making Russians understand that, that the war is, is coming to them, making the Russian command understand that in principle, you know, they can, their targets can be hit much deeper than they potentially expected if they don't react accordingly, if they don't move air defense around accordingly uh, and so on. So it's, it's a mix of these two and it's, it's a bit early to say, um, we know that Ukraine wants to escalate this and, and hit, you know, more and more of these targets deeper inside Russia. So we'll see later, like what, what the final effect is. Does Ukraine have a legal right to strike deep inside Russian territory? Because of course, Russia very loudly says that we don't. Of course they do. It's, it's very simple. I mean, you look at the way Russia's striking into, into Ukrainian territory, the way they're the way they're targeting infrastructure, the way they're hitting civilian targets. Um, there's no question. It's in the UN Charter, Article 51. You know, if one state attacks another, there is a right to self-defense and there is a right to specifically to, to strike against, against the, the aggressor state. Um, that, that's what happens in, in a state-to-state war, even though it's strange to think about because we we haven't had these kind of crazy state to state wars that we have now uh, on our hands um of course a response attack should always be proportionate should always be necessary um but again there shouldn't be really any question here you look at the proportion with which russia is attacking ukraine all over and you look at these difference in resources uh, you know ukraine will not send one of these really cool soviet drones they've got into uh, an apartment building they they won't do that and they haven't done that um so there's no question there i mean later on when everything gets worked out in the courts when when they go over this war front to back start to finish i guess there'll be a final decision but you know it's it's pretty pretty common sense at this point so the recent u.s intelligence leak mentioned that the U.S. actually wasn't giving Ukraine long-range weapons that the Ukrainian government has been asking for for months, in part because they intercepted Zelensky talking to somebody from the administration about attacking Russian territory, even though publicly the Ukrainian government was denying this possibility and saying that they would never do that. What I find interesting is, why is that a problem to begin with? Like, why was the U.S. so afraid that Kyiv would attack deep inside Russia? Yeah, so publicly, like the, the first concern was very, very open that they were concerned that Ukraine would immediately, for some reason, break any agreements that, that they might have had about these weapons and immediately start using them against, against Russian territory. And I guess that was the worry that high quality advanced US weapons would already be used straight against Russia and that I guess in the Russian mind, I mean, the US fear was that in the Russian mind where we're fighting NATO, we're fighting the whole West, that would be a very direct path to escalation. But then again, at the same time, it doesn't really match their logic of what they actually did, because in summer last year, they gave Ukraine these HIMARS systems, which obviously have proved to be very effective. And 
The HIMARS system has uh, one rocket, like a guided rocket with, with a range of 80 kilometers. And they gave Ukraine that. In theory, like <laughs> Ukraine has a border with Russia. So if, and there, I'm sure there are plenty of targets that Ukraine could use these right. 80 kilometer rockets against in Russia if they were ready to break that trust, if they were ready to just um, use those against Russia. And, and so in that context, it doesn't really make sense for the US to then say, oh, we'll give you the 80 kilometer ones, but we won't give you the 300 kilometer ones. Um, and those 300 kilometer missiles for the HIMARS system, they're called uh, Attack MS. There's been a lot talked about them. There's a lot of speculation that somehow they've been given secretly. But we don't have much evidence of that. And the US is still saying that they're not going to give them, which is a shame because with that range, Ukraine could target anything in occupied Crimea. Ukraine could target the bridge itself. Um, so that operational aspect of cutting off Crimea would, would, would really work straight away. But they are still refusing to give it. And, and their reasoning is, is less and less logical, I would say. Uh, recently, one of the spokespeople said that and this is what they talk about when they talk about uh, jets as well, F-16s. They say that Ukraine can basically do what they need to do without these. But then at the same time, they say that they're not sure that our counteroffensive is going to go as well yeah. as we're advertising it. It is a deeply, deeply flawed logic. Ukraine's success, especially with these really tricky offensive operations and Ukraine's success in the rest of the war depends... Almost directly, it's a direct function of the material help right. that Ukraine is given. And, and HIMARS, when it first arrived in, in, in summer last year, it was a game changer. And, you know, these new ranges potentially of, of long range weapons or of fighter jets could also be a game changer, will also be a game changer. Like it's not really, it's not really under question. So. So it, it's, a, it's a shame what they have done. And it, in a way, this almost proves how broken their logic is and, and how ridiculous the fear of escalation is at this point in the war. They have given Ukraine what's called the ground-launched small-diameter bomb. And what's that? Which is basically a rocket also for the HIMARS system um, with a range of 150 kilometers. So it flies around and then it kind of glides with wings and it can go a bit further, it can evade enemy air defenses. Um, and it's a really interesting weapon because it's just been developed in the past few years and it hasn't been used by anyone before. Oh, wow. Ukraine's gonna be the first operator of this and, it, and we'll see, it potentially might be easier to shoot down by, by Russian air defense, but it could also be another game changer, which raises the question, why not just, just go all the way and give Ukraine what right. it needs, but we've been here before, <laughs> yeah. There have also been dozens of these kind of ominous fires around Russia um, at oil depots, you've already mentioned, but also factories, various storage facilities. Do we know if Ukraine is behind this as well? You're right about the fires. Russia is burning a lot more than usual. Um, there was a study done by this Ukrainian open source intelligence investigative group called MOLFA, which uh, recorded over 200 kind of industrial facility fires uh, all across Russia in the first three months of this year, which is about double the normal rate. There was 400 or so in the whole of the previous year. And um, yeah, those are concentrated in industrial facilities, specifically potentially energy, energy facilities. And a lot of them were around Moscow Oblast, actually. So yeah, we, we don't know 
we and we can't know like what has actually caused all these hundreds of fires but there's a specific tendency of them going up you know with the war uh ukraine has talked about a very very top secret initiative uh called the black box uh, which had a few million dollars in investment from the Come Back Alive Foundation. And they have said that through this black box, they have done millions of dollars of damage to Russia, vaguely. But they have said that it has affected their ability to fight on the battlefield. So, and nobody knows what is this weapon in the secretive black box. No, no, nobody knows. People write articles saying inside the black box without any idea of what this black box actually being um so it, it's probably to be honest they're probably a mix of things probably uh ukraine has had their hand in some of them you could also have local anti-war groups um you know we know about how they set fire to military enlistment offices in russia quite often so mm -hmm. they could definitely be playing a role there and also just general economic conditions insurance scams those things but russia is certainly burning a lot that's that's for sure there is another part of this discussion that we haven't touched on at all yet, and that's Ukrainian strikes inside occupied Crimea. So how is our activity there different from attacks inside the Russian Federation? I mean, the first important distinction to make is that Crimea is Ukraine. So there's no, no questions whatsoever of legality, of escalation. Even the U.S. said, like, Ukraine has every right to hit Crimea with whatever they want. Um, because Crimea is Ukraine. So, you know, it's no different to Ukraine striking military targets in occupied Donetsk Oblast, near Mariupol or Melitopol, um, even though it's been occupied for longer. There, there's no difference whatsoever. And in that sense, um, it's also closer to, to Ukrainian controlled territory than a lot of these strikes deep inside Russia. Mm -hmm. So there are more options potentially for Ukraine to use. And, uh, in summer last year, again, there was some really spectacular attacks. I think uh, listeners will remember the attacks in the air bases in Crimea, which were all just within a few weeks of each other. Um, several, potentially several dozen aircraft damaged. We still don't know exactly what, uh, what weapons were used there either. It, it all comes back to this question of, of what Ukraine's long range capabilities really are. But yeah, it's also worth mentioning that Crimea is a very high concentration of, of Russian military equipment right. and logistics. It's, it's a center for them for that. And so, so, yeah, the more options Ukraine has at their disposal to attack Russian targets in Crimea, that very, has a very direct, very tangible effect on Russia's war effort in the east and the south of Ukraine. Do partisans play a role in these attacks? Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what they what what they do in terms of these longer range strikes that Ukraine um, Ukraine is doing. It's very very likely and possible that they have a, a role in identifying targets, in pointing out where you know Ukraine could see a window, see an opportunity to to strike something that that might not be there for a long time. Uh, so, as an example, there's this really cool partisan group in, in southern Ukraine, which is also active in Russia, according to their social media. It's called Atesh, which comes from the Crimean Tatar word for fire. Uh, they have a really cool logo. And uh, they're made up of Crimean Tatars, of Ukrainians, of some Russians as well. And, you know, they talk about their work and it's sometimes symbolic, sometimes uh, just spray painting, you know, that Ukraine's coming, but sometimes they also, you know, they, they do real partisan work as well. They blow up railway lines, they 
they um, attack potentially uh, yeah, equipment. Um, they say that they've destroyed Russian equipment. And it's very likely that they play an active role in also identifying targets um, for, for Ukrainian strikes inside, inside Crimea and inside Russia as well. You've mentioned that there have been attacks that Ukraine hasn't claimed responsibility to. So let's talk about the Ukrainian government's res- response to all of this. Are they claiming responsibility? So with Crimea, yes. Um, they don't necessarily say immediately that this was us, but, but we know more or less. Um, there are all these memes and jokes, and sometimes the Ukrainians really get into it with, on a state level, on an official level, these trolls about, about oh, well, Russians, sh- you know, should be more careful about where they're smoking. They need to be more careful <laughs> with fire safety rules because, right, yeah. yeah, if you smoke in the wrong place, you know, right. next minute you, you've lost a dozen fighter jets. Ukrainian um, general staff, I think, yeah. actually posted these things in their official Twitter. They, they love that stuff. But in September last year, uh, Ukraine's commander-in-chief, uh, Valery Zaluzhny, the one and only, uh, actually said that, yes, the air, airfield strike in Saki, that was, that was Ukraine. He said it was a missile strike, although he still didn't uh, make it very clear what kind of missile, and we still don't know what they used there. Um, and in that interview, actually, Zaluzhny, he actually talked a lot about the motivations um, for these kind of deeper strikes into Crimea and in Russia as well. It's worth remembering Crimea is Ukraine, but it has been occupied for nine years now, and Russians treat it as Russia. So he, he was really saying that the aim of these strikes in many ways is to kind of physically transfer the zone of hostilities. That's how he said it. Um, so basically to bring the war home to Russia, to understand that they can't just live their normal lives um, and, and, and kind of not be involved. And that if, if something doesn't happen, you know, the war will come to them. This psychological aspect also worked really well with the Crimean bridge attack and Ukraine still hasn't claimed responsibility for that. We still don't know exactly how that, how that was carried out. But that's basically the same way that Ukraine has, has treated the strikes inside Russia as well. Um, they're being very ambiguous about it. They never actually say, yes, this was us, even though sometimes it's very obvious. Um, and another person who comments on this a lot is the, the head of this Hur military intelligence organization, Kirillo Budanov, who has also become quite an iconic meme figure for the way he right. kind of stoically responds to, to questions, keeping all the cards to his chest, but also giving away quite a lot at the same time. Um, he was interviewed, I think it was in January or December after the strikes in, in the Engels Air Base, and he was asked you know, uh, how did you feel about this? And he said, very good, you know, very, <laughs> very, very happy. <laughs> and then, and he still didn't claim responsibility. He didn't yeah, say it was, yeah. it was us. Um, but then he was asked, can we, can we see more of these in the future? And he, you know, deeper inside Russia. And he just said, deeper and deeper. <laughs> so that's what... So that's, that's kind of Ukraine's ac- approach to this. They know it's, it's kind of psychological. I think, I think that he was a little bit, Budanov especially was a little bit rattled by, by the leaks. Budanov understands that there's this tension uh, with, with Washington about strikes inside Russia. So he was potentially 
a little bit rocked by these leaks. Um, and so responding to questions later, he was, he was a, a bit more cautious and he didn't comment about these, these planned attacks on Moscow or anything. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all, it's all out in the open. We know that Ukraine has been doing this. We know their reasons for it. And we know that they're going to continue to develop and improve on this in the future. And what about Russia? How is the Russian society and the Russian government reacting to these attacks? I mean, at first they, they didn't really know how to react because on one hand, yeah, Ukraine's attacking them and they want to talk about, you know, this, this war being existential for Russia as well. But at the same time, there's always this real reluctance to admit that, that something went wrong right. in, in Russian and Soviet kind of public relations culture. And, and so that was the case way back with the sinking of the Moscow, uh, Moskva cruiser. And it's the same thing. So they were at first not sure. Now they're slowly talking about it more. They're saying that these are Ukrainian drones um, and they're trying to, you know, turn the narrative more into, look, you know, we are being attacked ourselves. There's always a flip side to this narrative of bringing the war to Russia because Russian propaganda also uses it as well. Like, you know, we need to win this war. You need to, we need more mobilization because, yeah. because they're coming for us now, you know. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's the psychological effect is, is working in another way in the sense that um, they are obviously concerned. They, they realize that Ukraine has this ability that they didn't have, they didn't think they had before. And the, the funniest thing was when they put these Pansir mobile air defense systems on strategic roofs inside Moscow, uh, including, it looked ridiculous, so many memes were made out of it, including on the roof of the Russian defense ministry. Right. Just, just one air defense system on the roof. One or two, yeah, and a, and a few other, a few other like key buildings in Moscow had these like ridiculous huge air defense systems right on the top. And yeah, there's there's no better way of of telling the world that you're quite you're quite worried about this threat, I right? Guess. Um, but otherwise, you know, they can't they can't really react. They can't really escalate in any way. Which, is, which goes back to where like, this U.S. logic is quite flawed because Russia doesn't have basically the tools to, to escalate in, in any new way with conventional weapons that, that we know of. We know what happens when they try and use all their cruise missiles at once. Uh, we know that they're running out of them. There's nothing, there's nothing more that they could do. Well, there are still nuclear weapons, including tactical ones, right? Yeah. I think that's the major American worry. When it comes to nuclear weapons, I can just say that they're not in the picture at the moment for in, in the Kremlin's decision making. You sound very much like Budanov right trying, now. I'm trying to channel him a little bit, uh, although I don't have all the information that he has. But no, I, I, I don't think they're considering this. I think that they're very aware that that would cross a huge red line be unprecedented in international relations in general. And, and they're not going to do it because a Ukrainian drone made it to Moscow. If, if it ever comes into the picture, it will come into the picture when Ukraine is on the brink of winning this war completely, like taking back Crimea. Then maybe it'll, they'll be thinking about it. But until then, no worries. We're now going to be answering some questions that we got from our supporters on Patreon. 
Our patrons actually get a chance to ask us questions before every single episode. They also get exclusive access to thematic events like discussions with editors and more. It's really simple. You can get such access by going to patreon.com slash independent for as little as $5 a month. So the first question is, if you could give an explanation of the difference between partisan attacks and government forces. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty good question. Um, at the end of the day, I think there's always a spectrum of cooperation, like of the level of cooperation between like local groups on the ground in occupied territories, potentially even in Russia. Uh, we know there are partisans in Belarus, that's for sure. So the, the level of coordination and cooperation and potentially like taking orders from Ukrainian security services. Uh, we know that they're definitely in contact. It's very easy for them to be in contact. If they see a new like temporary base where dozens of hundreds of Russian soldiers or a couple of tanks have moved in, it's very easy for them to, to let Ukraine know because maybe they don't have the means to, to blow them up, but Ukraine does. And so they'll send the coordinates. Um, and Ukraine actually has a whole body dedicated to this yeah. kind of work, right? Yeah, it's called the the National Resistance Center. They actually publish quite a lot about about the achievements that they've done together with with partisan groups on the ground. Um, hmm. It's hard to say if there are you know actual units remaining inside occupied territories that just take all their orders from from Ukrainian security services. But again, it's about coordination and cooperation. Another question that we got is. Is it possible that the Ukrainian armed forces could launch a part of the counteroffensive that's upcoming from behind enemy lines across the Russian border? It's an interesting question um, because, because Ukraine always surprises us in many ways. We didn't expect the Kharkiv counteroffensive. We didn't expect the, the Crimea attacks. We didn't expect the Crimean bridge explosion. And yet here we are. We didn't expect the Engels base attacks. And yet here right. we are. So... Anything could happen, but still, I would say the likelihood of that is, is very, very low. Because when you're talking about an offensive, you're talking about boots on the ground and you're talking about actually taking territory. We had these weird raids in Bryansk Oblast uh, from uh, a kind of far-right Russian group that was connected with kind of in, in coordination with, with Ukraine, but... Ukraine said that they didn't give the orders for them to go into Bryansk Oblast and they didn't really do anything. They went into a village and said, we're here. And then they Took left. Took some photos. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about a large scale offensive, first that would need to make strategic sense. And it doesn't make much strategic sense to go into Russian territory when you have so much of your own front line that is occupied where, where it's your territory. Secondly, again, that's boots on the ground. That's kind of taking territory inside Russia's internationally recognized borders. And that's, that's where I think even if it did make some kind of strategic sense, uh, I, think, I think they would not go so far. We know what the U.S. thinks about certain attacks in Russian territory. And if, and if they thought Ukraine would actually think about holding territory, even temporarily, um, they would not be happy. Well, Francis, thanks for joining us again. This was very interesting. Thank you. Always a big pleasure. Also this week, The New York Times reported, citing several American officials, that the long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive may start as soon as in May. 
President Zelensky had a phone call with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping for the first time since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shmihal announced that two cities and four villages around Ukraine, which were badly damaged by Russia's full-scale invasion, will be, quote, completely restored in line with Ukraine's Build Back Better efforts. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content whenever you're listening to this podcast. Also, support The Cuban Independent on Patreon at patreon.com slash independent and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.